0: overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You're the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds." Those are the first four verses of Psalm 45, which is the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, September the 7th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're looking at continuing our look at the kings of the northern kingdom. Remember, we had a split after the death of... Solomon and his son Rehoboam has uh, sway and power only over the, the tribe of Judah, while the other tribes separated away from Rehoboam and followed after Jeroboam and moved their worship <clears throat> to the north. And this kingdom ends after the 8th century uh, BC, while the the tribe of Judah continues to be Israel even until today. And so then we have also the Epistle from Philippians chapter One, verses twelve to thirty, and then in mark 's Gospel chapter sixteen verses one to twenty, which are the last twenty verses of Mark's Gospel, I want to say quickly about the psalm for today it 's written to the king so it's it 's written upon the coronation probably of a king, and so it it 's a an ode to the king but in in our case, the king we speak these things to is actually Jesus, the one who sits upon the throne forever. And so that that's the way to read that psalm best is to read it with Jesus in mind as the object of the psalm. So here we are in First Kings sixteen. We're looking at uh, verses twenty three to thirty four in the first thirty first year of King of Asa, King of Judah. The Typically, the the way that the, the Kings, book of Kings and Chronicles is going to be written is it, once there's a split in the kingdom, it's going to tell you when in the reign of the other kingdom, as long as it exists, that this one occurred. So it's the 31st year of, of Asa, king of Judah, and at that point, Omri... Began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for twelve years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. So this is in the northern kingdom. When it says to reign over Israel, in this context, it means the northern kingdom. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city they built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. That's going to be the capital of the northern kingdom. Is Samaria. <laughs> Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil, in fact, than all those who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who is the first king of of the northern kingdom, and who yesterday we saw being confronted by a prophet coming from Judah to tell him that all of these uh, high places that he had set up for worship would be overthrown. He set those high places up in contrast to Jerusalem in order to do one basic thing. His concern was that if people continued to go to Jerusalem after the split, then ultimately that split would be restored. And so he, he set up other worship places so they didn't have to go to Jerusalem any longer. And and that's why, that's the evil that it's saying that he did. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So the other thing he did, I forgot to mention, was that he did exactly, exactly what Aaron did um, upon the people's response to say, up, make us gods who will go before us. Because we don't know what happened to this Moses who was there before. And so what he did was he changed, the, he made two golden calves and set up one in, in one place and one in another. And so he, he did exactly the same thing. And so he they made idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. So Omri was a bad guy. He continued what Jeroboam had done, and then and then magnified it a little bit. Apparently, in the thirty, but, but that's all we're told about him. He he makes very little impact as far as we're concerned. But but then we get to to his son Ahab. So in the thirty eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, so seven years later, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in the capital in Samaria. So in other words, what's happened is is that, that we've gotten this other king now, Ahab, who comes in after his father Omri, who had continued in and worsened the sins of Jeroboam, his predecessor, and and, and instead of moving the nation, this part of the nation back towards um, Yahweh, the, no, 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 no. Ahab says, no, 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 no. Hey, you know, you guys have done all this bad stuff. Well, hold my beer. I'm going to ratchet this up a little bit. I'm actually going to create an altar for Baal right here in the center. Of the nation, right there in Samaria, and so he made an Asherah pole, which is another fertility goddess, and so he does makes that as well. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab just he just doesn't care at the end of the day, he, and he has he gives himself over. He, surely he made a a, a, a pact with Ethbaal, the father of Jezebel, and said, okay, you know, we're going to mutually protect one another. And so Ethbaal is up in Sidon, therefore he's the king of the Sidonians. And so in order to do that, then he marries the king's daughter. And so now there's an alliance between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Sidon and the kingdom of Israel, which is based in Samaria. And it gets worse, actually, because in the days of Hiel of Bethel, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua had pronounced a curse on anyone who tried to build Jericho after they had raised it as the first place that that they conquered when they came into the land. He had pronounced a curse about the, the children of one who did that would die. And Hiel, who surely has to have known this, decides to go ahead anyway, and even when it costs him the the life of one of his sons, he continues and does it and, and goes further until another dies but but it's it's essentially sacrificing to molech to have more to 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 make your dreams come true you're willing to sacrifice your children for that purpose it's because there's greed and, and it's it's nothing more than I want a monument to myself, and because I want a monument to myself, I'm willing to sacrifice anything, including the lives of my children, in order to do that. It's an awful, awful situation in in um, Israel during this period of time, and it gets worse because not only does Ahab continue to follow after these other gods, he, he essentially cedes control of the kingdom to his wife Jezebel. And he allows her to run roughshod over him. He is a pathetic excuse for a king. So this this psalm that we started with today clearly was never written with Ahab in mind. In the gospel, remember yesterday. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the son of Joseph, had gone and seen where the body had been laid by Joseph of Arimathea. And so the next morning when the Sabbath had ended, so they, they have to wait you know, 24, 48 hours, They they, have to go, they go then to anoint Jesus with the spices. Early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen—in so other words, the Sabbath is over and the new day has dawned—they uh, went to the tomb and they said to one another on the way there, "Oh wait, you know we forgot one detail. Who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?" And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back, and it was very large, Mark says. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to him, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. So, so they're just, he's just pointing. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There's an ominous thing about that, right? Because I wonder if the disciples had sort of moved Peter to the side because of his betrayals. Um, but but they're, to go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, there you'll see him just like he told you. And they went and fled from the tomb, trembling, <clears throat> and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So... what? Well, This angel, this young man, tells them what to do to go and tell the disciples where to go that they might see Jesus. And instead, they're so afraid of what they see, they they say nothing to anyone. Now, from this point forward, (laughs) these verses that finish this chapter are not in any of the earliest manuscripts. It's only about the third century AD, that that any of this comes into the gospel. There there are no early manuscripts that contain these verses, and and in spite of that, one of these verses, you'll see in a minute, is used in some bizarre forms of worship uh, that include snake handling and drinking poison. So anyway, here we go. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. We see that in Matthew's gospel, for instance, where he he speaks her name. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they wouldn't believe it. The testimony of women was not to be believed. They couldn't give testimony in court. They were considered to be unreliable witnesses. After these things, he, Jesus, appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they didn't believe them either. And these must be the two disciples Luke tells us about, the disciples who meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus, who then run back immediately that evening, even though it's late in the day, they go back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples about this. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they, could not, they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And so that's when he comes to the disciples in the locked room and, and bids them peace, but then sort of kind of rebukes them, um, particularly Thomas, right, and, and tells him to come and, and put his finger where the nails had been and to put his hand in his side. And then he said to them, "'Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they'll cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover.'" So it's it's this part, really. I mean, the first part of that, like I said, I I can tell you exactly where all those stories come from. And then we get down to this thing with the signs that will accompany them. And then we get people who are are basing their entire religious worship practices on handling snakes and drinking poison. Well, there's no commendation for that, and there's certainly no commandment to do these things. Um, It's if— you know, this happens, then this will happen. But it's not go out and get snakes and get poison and, and use that as part of your worship. No, 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 no. It's speaking of God's protection. Clearly, it, you know, even if you if you even if you allow these as disputed verses, and then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up to, into heaven and sat at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed their message by accompanying signs, which is exactly what the Book of Acts tells us. So anyway, now we move forward and we move into the epistle for today, and there's a lot to it, so we're going to run a little bit late. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me, that's Paul being arrested and put in chains and taken to Rome, tried before multiple... um, officials prior to that he says what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of the imprisonment is for christ so paul is able to witness while he's in rome he's not under you know he's under guard but people can come and see him and all that kind of stuff and so what he's saying is is that even you know, this seems like a bad thing that I'm under house arrest here in Rome. But what it's done is it's enabled me, actually, to preach the gospel in places that would never have been preached otherwise, among the imperial guard, among the governors and the kings and everybody else that I've been sent before. So he says that my imprisonment is actually for Christ in order that the gospel could go forward into the highest places of Roman authority. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, you know, th- this is actually emboldened people because they see that, that I'm not being tried and put to death. No, they see that I'm having an opportunity to continue to preach the gospel. And so they've become bolder as well. And so sometimes we, we, we just don't see the redemptive value in suffering, but Paul does. He sees redemptive value in, in his suffering in the midst of that suffering. He says that that God's doing something remarkable that he wouldn't have been able to do had I not been in this particular situation that I'm in. I don't have to like it, but I do have to celebrate the fact that God has used it and ordained it for his own purposes. And what's more important to me is the preaching of the gospel than my own freedom. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, the ones who preach from goodwill, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So they would have been doing this to, to harm Paul in some way, to, to, to usurp his place among in the church uh, and, and to make much of themselves and paul says look you know at the end of the day hey the, the main thing is that the, the gospel is being proclaimed and in that i rejoice whether you're doing it from good motives or bad motives he said yes and i will rejoice for i know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of jesus christ this will turn out for my deliverance as is my eager expectation and hope that i will not be at all ashamed in other words i think this is going to turn out fine In the end, I think I'm going to be all right. He said, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whichever way it goes, he said, it's not going to make any difference. I'm going to live the same way. I'm going to be the same guy. I'm not going to bemoan the fact that I'm here and that I might die because of this. And I'm not also going to to put too much in in the other. And, And you have to take that attitude that no matter which way this thing goes, I'm going to glorify him. And that's exactly what Paul was set his mind to do. He said, "For for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means for, for labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. Yeah, because it's graduation. You're getting to the 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 part of eternity that we all want. It was going to be a perfect world. In other words, he said, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So it's more important for you that, that I remain and continue to preach the gospel. And he says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul says, I'm not concerned about this one way or another, but, but I believe it's more profitable that I would stay with you. you know, he, so he says, that's, that's what I believe is going to happen. <clears throat> Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live out your belief. Live out your life in concert with what you believe and what God said. So live in such a way to distinguish yourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. To, so live like he would live, so that whether I come and see you or, or I am absent, I may hear of what you are, that, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Paul never promised anybody that following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel was the guide and, and the path to the good life. That is not what he ever believed, and it's certainly not what he lived. He says that that it's ordained, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. How many, I mean, I've said this a million times, nobody, Hardly at all prepares Christians for suffering. No, we we want to make them promises that your life will be perfect if you do this. And nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in the epistles is that found. It's a lie from the pit of hell. We're selling people a false bill of goods. No, our promise is that he will be with us. He will accompany us. That's exactly what he said, even to the end of the age let's let's be ready for what's to come in order that we might glorify him in that suffering let's be prepared for that Let, let's be willing to suffer for the gospel of-